Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter two. So we've been making our way through the book of First Peter, making our way through chapter two. We've come now to this point in the book of First Peter where, where especially Peter is going to be applying the gospel to the various aspects and spheres of our lives and applying it to the various relationships uh, that we have, and uh, particularly here, the, the relationship we have as Christians to the state, to, to governing uh, authorities. And uh, of course, in, in, in the time that we live in, uh, a lot of people have some very impassioned feelings uh, uh, about this. And so, um, I know we've been making our way very slowly through the book of First Peter, uh, so far, but we're going to make our way even slower now that we've uh, come to this uh, section. So if you're familiar with uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I was mentioning this to the guys earlier, we're going we're gonna to Lloyd-Jones it up. Um, we are going to uh, take our time through it, through going through this particular section, especially with the, uh, the, the Christian and uh, the authorities that, that be. So this morning is, is part one. And uh, I don't know if there's going to be a part uh, three or four. We'll see as we, as we move along. Uh, but consider this morning as sort of um, setting the table. Right? We're, we're going to lay sort of the foundational principle uh, for how we are to think about our own relationship to governing authorities. We are, we are placing the, the white cloth on the table this morning, and then over the coming weeks we'll start putting the the individual pieces and, and dishes uh, on the table. So this morning I want to begin uh, by reading actually from verse 12. Uh, verse 12 is going to be our main focus, but we'll read from verse 12 down to uh, verse 17. And, and again, over the coming weeks we'll be reading this, this passage uh, quite frequently. So 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. We read the Apostle Peter writing and saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says to believers, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's go again to the Lord. 
Father, your word speaks to every aspect of our lives. We do not, as your people, receive the gospel and then move on. We do not profess faith in Jesus at one time and then live however we please. Your word instructs us in the lives that we are to live in light of the life we have received through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for us especially as we begin thinking through what Your Word teaches us with respect to our own relationship to the governing authorities that You have placed over us. Lord, that You would give us wisdom to to know how to conduct ourselves properly so that we would not bring any unnecessary stumbling blocks to the Gospel, but that's so that also we would not be a people who remain silent in the face of evil. Lord, help us to be a people who live our lives through biblical instruction. So I pray that You would be with us this morning, especially as we consider Your Word. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. When we first began going through the book of 1 Peter, we began with an overview of the whole book so that we could get the the big picture of what's going on. I I knew intentionally that we were going to slow down for, uh, for this letter especially in making our way through it because I think this letter especially is so relevant to where we are today and and many of the the, the various trials and struggles that we face as as Christians today. And one of the things that we saw in the beginning is that this epistle uh, begins in a kind of celebratory fashion. In chapter 1, Peter, we find, is, is praising God. And he's praising God because of God's saving works that He's done for His people in and through Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 begins with what many older theologians would call dogmatics. It begins with theology. It's concerned with, with what God does for us and in us. The great truths, for example, of regeneration, of the new birth, the truths of the sovereignty of God in salvation, the doctrine of election, the the doctrine of Scripture, of of prophecy, the doctrine even of the the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, and even many more things. And of course, even beyond chapter 1, Peter weaves throughout the arguments of his letter even more of these theological truths into his arguments and his various exhortations to believers in Asia. You'll remember, for example, from a few weeks ago, from chapter 2, verses 9 to to 10, that Peter spoke of the great truth that in Christ, believers have been made into something altogether new. That that we are are different. We have a, a new status before 
God Himself that shapes who we actually are. He draws on the language of the book of Exodus and and Deuteronomy when God was speaking of His covenant people in in the Old Testament. And and Peter describes believers now as as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation and a, and a people for God's own possession. That's, that's who we have become. That's not who we always have been. We at one time, apart from Christ, were those who were abiding under the wrath of God. And yet now, because of Christ, things have changed. We are His, His treasured possession. And these are all great and, and encouraging and and soul-strengthening theological truths. And as Christians, we we need these truths. We we need to embrace all that the Bible teaches us about theology, about dogmatics. And and I think if we're honest, in, in truth, everyone does. Everyone embraces some kind of theology. Everyone has a belief or beliefs about God. And the question really is whether or not our theology is good or bad or whether or not it's true and actually rooted in the the text of Scripture or or whether it's false and it's rooted in the ever-changing cultural winds of the day. I saw the other day where there was some celebrity pastor that posted this well-edited, short little video with some you know, always inspiring music playing in, in the background. As he spoke, he, he had this message, and, and he was saying that there are, there are many different kinds of Christians that are out there. Right? there there's many denominations. There's, there's many interpretations of Scripture. There are, there are many different translations of, of Scripture. And because of this, he, he argued, we don't need to get all bogged down in all of these various points of theology. We don't need to judge others who have a different interpretation of Scripture than, than our own. We, we just need to love. We need to unite. We need to come together. And while I think the, the background music especially can really make this message sound appealing, and of course, because this is really a part of the spirit of the age, right? this, this kind of message is, is very appealing to, to many people. Yes, we don't need to consider matters of, of theology. These are just divisive points of, of doctrine. We just need to unite. The problem, however, is that as we look throughout Scripture, that is not the method or the message of the apostles. They begin always with theology. They begin with the great truths of the gospel. That is always their foundation. Nothing can be built apart from this foundation. No commandments or instructions can or are ever given apart from this very foundation. No, no idea even of the, of the unity of believers is ever given apart from the foundational truths of the Gospel and what 
God has done in Christ. And so no true unity can be had and no true growth and maturity can flourish apart from the foundation that a sound theology provides. In the epistle to the Galatians, for example, what is the Apostle Paul most concerned about there? What, what is keeping him up at night? It's not how the Galatian believers are, are treating each other and are, and are divisive. You know, some of that's going on, but that, that's not what's driving his letter and, and how he's communicating in this, this letter. In fact, the book of Galatians is really the only New Testament letter that does not begin with some greeting that's giving thanks for the church that he's writing to, even though they may be dealing with various difficult matters. This is, this is the only letter that he writes where he begins and he says, I'm astonished at how quickly you've departed. And, and it ends on, on even more of a, almost a sour note. If you turn with me at the end of the book of Galatians, notice how it ends in chapter 6 and verse 17. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He's greatly concerned about this particular body of Christians. And he's greatly concerned, not again because necessarily of how they're treating each other, he's concerned about their theology. All of their sinful behaviors flow from their departure from the Gospel, flow from their errant theology. Even though they were continuing to acknowledge and confess, in fact, that Jesus Christ is Lord, even though they were still in their minds believing in Him and saying that they have faith in Him, because they had embraced a theology that taught that a person is justified and and made right before God, not simply on the basis of faith in Christ, but also on the basis of keeping the works of the law, Paul says, you've abandoned the Gospel. You don't even have it right now. You have to abandon this false teaching you've embraced and return to the heart, the true Gospel. And so theology is foundational to everything. It is always the starting point. We, we begin in the realm of dogmatics. That is always first. But we don't then end there. We're not finished at that point. The apostles aren't finished at that point. What we find throughout the Bible, and particularly here in 1 Peter, is that dogmatic, that theology, overflows into the realm of ethics. And in ethics, as the Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bavink once wrote, in ethics we are interested in the question of what it is that God now expects of us when He has done His work in us. What do we now do for Him? 
And he says, here we are active precisely because of and on the grounds of God's deeds in us. In other words, the truths of the Gospel demand a certain kind of response by those who embrace it. Christianity and following Christ is, of course, not simply a matter of saying, you know, I believe in Jesus and and my sins are forgiven and I'm saved and, and then from that point on, living however we please. The Gospel is not a message that Jesus saves sinners so that they can continue living in sin. It is a message that affects and and has implications for every single aspect of our lives. Once we have become disciples of Christ by the grace of God, there is now an ethical way of life that we are to live that is in accordance with that Gospel we have embraced. The Gospel has implications for how we are to order our families. That's a very personal matter, is it not? Many people would say, you know, what I do within my own home, that's my own business. That's not your business. Well, it's God's business. And God has given instructions to Christians on on how they are to order their their very own families. The, The roles and responsibilities of husbands and wives and children to their parents. It has implications for how we are to live in the church and and what our relationship to the body of Christ is to be. It has implications for how we we conduct ourselves within our our own place of of work. And And it even has implications for how we are to relate to the state. The governing authority. The Gospel has political ramifications. And this matter in particular is what we're going to begin looking at today and in the coming weeks. Now, it is clear from the Bible and clear from our text in 1 Peter that the Word of God is not neutral when it comes to the realm of politics and our relationship to the state. It does not step away and allow us to just make things up as we go along. But in recognizing what is really just this basic fact, we must also recognize that there is a real difficulty in addressing this particular subject, not because the Bible isn't clear on the matter, but because there are so many assumptions and beliefs and even passions that even Christians can bring to it that it can often cloud our reception of what the Bible demands from us. This has always been the case. I think, of course, we feel it especially in, in our own day. There's always been political struggles and debates among Christians about our relationship to the state, but though we can receive instruction from the past, we we always especially feel the the tensions of our present moment. We can find ourselves within this culture part of caricatures and 
division. If you criticize, for example, a position or the actions of some Democrat politician, well, that's just because you're some right-wing nut who watches way too much Fox News. Or if, on the other hand, you criticize a, a Republican, right? you point out some real hypocrisy or sin and one of their lies, right? well, that's because you've just become some loony Democrat who can't tell the difference between a boy or a girl. You think it's wise to get vaccinated for COVID and wear a mask. It's because you've drank all of the fear-mongering Kool-Aid. And if you decide, on the other hand, to, to go unvaccinated and, and to resist mask mandates, well, it's because you're, what, a, a science denier. And you hate your neighbor as well. If you think the government ought to carry out its rule in accordance with biblical righteousness and, and biblical wisdom. Well what, well, what are you at that point? You're just a theonomist who believes that we have to implement some sort of Christian theocratic form of government. And if you think that the church should generally stay away from the political realm, well, you're just a, a silly pacifist who would be perfectly okay with allowing pagans to order society. Many fixed in these various assumptions and, and many more like them. And add to this the fact that as Peter says in verse 11, we have passions of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Add to this that we have natural inclinations that bend us in one direction or another. Some have a natural inclination to revolt against perceived government overreach. Some have a natural inclination to be more passive simply for the sake of avoiding any kind of conflict. These conflicting passions and these assumptions and these various beliefs can very quickly and easily lead us to make the Bible say things that it actually not in order to justify the positions we already hold. Well, because of these many challenges and, and for many more reasons that we could add, we're going to take our time working through this question of the relationship between the Christian and the state. Now, as we begin considering this matter from our text, I think it's worth pointing out that Peter doesn't begin addressing our relationship to the state in verse 13. He really begins in verse 12. Verse 12, if you look with me there, is a kind of introductory or, or summary statement for really everything that is about to follow. It's laying the foundation or the general principle for Peter's specific instructions. And Peter says there in verse 12, notice with me, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Now, sometimes this text and others like it is understood to mean that Peter is greatly concerned about how unbelievers, here referred to as as Gentiles, view Christians. This is what he's he's really concerned about, how how the outside world perceives us. This is a matter of great importance to him. And this interpretation shapes how many Christians behave around unbelievers and and what they're willing to do or not do and and what they're willing to say or or not to say. I remember, for example, at the, the annual Southern Baptist Convention just this past year, Southern Baptists were debating about how and if the matter of critical race theory should be publicly addressed through a a resolution, which is the way that the convention as a whole makes statements about various matters of concern. And the president of the resolutions committee, James Merritt, spoke out against passing a resolution. And in his fiery speech, he was chiding Southern Baptists for wanting to do such because as he said, The world is watching. The world is watching. People are looking at us. And his concern, as well as the concern of many others like him, is that if we give a a clear and forceful repudiation to this dangerous ideology, well, the, the watching world may perceive us to be supporting racism. And even if it's a false Conclusion, we don't want that false perception to be a hindrance to the Gospel. Now frankly, I think that's a rather bizarre position to take. I can only imagine the amount of things that Jesus and the apostles and the prophets before them would have had to have refrained from speaking on lest the watching world could possibly be offended by it. And of course, here in 1 Peter, that is not Peter's concern. In fact, Peter, if you look with me again at verse 12, Peter takes it as a given that unbelievers are going to view as backwards and even a wicked kind of people. Notice again in verse 12, he says, when they speak of you as evildoers. And not, uh, not just, oh, we happen to, to disagree with this new sect that has arisen from Jerusalem. No, they are evil. These Christians are working evil. When they speak of you, he says, as evildoers. In chapter 3, if you look with me there in verses 15 to 16, he says that we are to always be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet doing so with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that, notice, when you are slandered, what will happen? You are slandered. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
they're, they're living with good behavior. They're doing good works, and despite that, they're being reviled by the watching world and slandered. In chapter 4, verse 4, he says of the Gentiles that they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They speak evil of you. And then again in verse 14 of that same chapter, he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. The world, friends, is never going to come to a correct conclusion about Christians. There's no scenario where if every single professing Christian was living in absolute perfection, if we could even think hypothetically, if if the scenario was that we had reached full glorification here on earth, that, that God had transformed our sinful fleshly bodies and we were perfectly conformed into the image of Christ here and now. There's no scenario where the outside world is going to come to the conclusion that these are good God-honoring people. Surely if we lived as exact representations of Christ, surely if we imitated Him perfectly, surely then the world wouldn't think to crucify us. Now, the general principle, friends, is what Christ promised in the Gospel of John. The expectation we should have. As He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it hated you. That's the expectation. That's the expectation even Peter has in 1 Peter. You will be spoken of as evildoers. You will be slandered and maligned. You will be insulted. You will suffer. Now, this is an important point to understand even as we consider our relationship to the state because there are some Christians who believe that we must obey virtually everything governing authorities decree unless it specifically reaches into some matter involving the worship of God in the church. And one of the things that undergirds this particular conclusion is this very idea that we ought not to do anything which may cause the world to be displeased with us. Particularly in this case, rulers. I want you to see here again that the expectation is that since we are indeed exiles and sojourners and foreigners in this world, since we bear the name of Christ, the world is generally not going to have much good to say about us. What Peter is concerned about here is that Christians not live in such a way that the accusations by the world can stick. He's concerned that our lives lived, of course, in response to the Gospel are righteous and godly so that if accusations are launched at Christians that we are evildoers for some 
reason. Those accusations will in fact be nothing more than slander and bearing false witness. They don't stick. Additionally, Peter has an evangelistic concern here. He has an evangelistic concern. Notice again the end of the verse. It says that when they speak evil against you as or, or speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's another one of his concerns. Now, the day of visitation here can, can sometimes refer to the day of God's judgment. It has a, a, a negative connotation to it, either in the future or His judgment carried out uh, in the world. And, and sometimes it can refer to His salvation, either in, in the future or even carried out here on earth. Like, for example, when we become believers. Commentators are generally split in their interpretations as to what exactly is being referred to here. But I would argue here that the day of visitation in this text refers to the time when God graciously saves a person. When He visits them in a, in a gracious way. And there's at least two reasons for this. One is that unbelieving Gentiles in this day of visitation, he says, are glorifying God. In, in virtually every occasion where you find someone glorifying God throughout Scripture, they are rejoicing in and praising God for His gracious works of salvation. It's a, it's a positive response to the saving works of the Lord. So that doesn't sound like the response of unbelievers in judgment. Furthermore, in chapter 3, verse 1, wives of unbelieving husbands are presented as a clear example of this very goal. Peter says, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands so that, it, so that even if some do not obey the Word, even if they're unbelievers, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, Peter does not mean here that there's some way that someone can be led to Christ that requires no verbal proclamation of the Gospel at all. This is, of course, the same Peter who in chapter 1, verse 23 says that we are born again through the living and abiding Word of God. You have to hear the Word of God. It's not as if an unbeliever can... And just look at all of your good works. And then they're just sort of on the spot going to conclude, oh, there, there must be this God-man named Jesus Christ who's ordering these very actions in your life and I must now follow Him. Right? That, that, that's not going to happen. Right? There has to be some sort of verbal proclamation of the Gospel. 
Now what Peter is getting at here is that our deeds can either aid in the work of bringing someone to Christ or they can be a hindrance to it. John Calvin says something similar when he writes, Peter's words are, are not to be so understood as though a holy life alone could lead the unbelieving to Christ, but that it softens and pacifies their minds so that they might have less dislike to religion. Whereas bad examples create offenses, so good ones afford no small help. This is how the unbelieving husbands in particular are to be one. And this is also what Peter means in chapter 2, verse 12. Our conduct is to have an evangelistic aim to it. We want the lost of whom, if you are in Christ, we all once were. We want the lost to worship God. We want them to taste of the goodness of His salvation. We want them to to know the freedom that exists in Christ. The freedom from their sin that enslaves them and will kill them. And how we live will have an impact on the message that we preach. Either for good or for bad. And friends, really, who, who can deny this? Right? This is really, we're stating an obvious fact at this point. If you're saying to others, for example, that they, they need to trust in Christ, what are you saying to them? You're basically speaking a, a shorthand to them. You're telling them you need to turn away from your sins. Right? You, 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 you need to have your, your sins washed away. You, 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 you're at enmity with God. You are abiding under His wrath at this moment. You are under judgment apart from Christ. But, but the promise of the Gospel is that if you repent of your sins, if you flee from those sins, and in fleeing from your sins, you, you turn to Christ as your, your hope and your Savior and the One who will indeed wash you of your sins, you will be saved. And you will be made a child of God and you will become an heir to all of the promises of God. He will make you a new creation and you will follow Him all your days. That's essentially what you're saying. When you're telling someone to, to trust in Christ. You're appealing to them to, to give their lives to the Lord Jesus. But then what if in your own life you are habitually disobedient to His Word? You're fornicating and sleeping around. You're defrauding people. You, you carry yourself in a bitter and angry manner. You're, you're divisive, neglectful of the Word of God. You're living like one famous philosopher named Leah once said, a, a creaster. That's somebody who comes to church, right? Twice a year. Once on Christmas, once on Easter. There's no, there's no visible evidence that you, you know the Lord. There's no godly example of, in, in your own life. If that's how you're living, what sort of actual witness 
is love. How would that convince anyone that Christ is worth following? And you're saying, give your life to the Lord, and, and you don't think twice about the Lord throughout the day. What kind of Lord is that? Your, your witness is ruined. That's what Peter's getting at here. What if, on the other hand, your, your conduct is truly godly in response to the gracious salvation of God that you've received in Christ? Your life has, in fact, become truly different. Your desires are strangely different. You long for holiness. What is that? I can remember the days of not knowing the Lord, and that is an evil-sounding word. Holiness? That sounds like such a terrible thing to pursue. But, but now, because of the grace of the Lord, your, your heart has changed. And you desire these things. You want to be a faithful servant in the church and to love the, the body of Christ because Christ first loved you. You strive with all of your effort to commune with God on a daily basis. You, you hear from His Word. You read His Word. And it is like the droppings of a sweet honeycomb. You pray to the Lord. And you walk with Him. And you work. You, you work hard. Not to please man, but to please the Lord. When you sin against others, you, you humble yourself and you you work to reconcile as quickly as possible. You don't participate in ungodly banter, but you, you season your speech with kindness and respectfulness in the Gospel of Christ. You keep your marriage pure. You keep yourself pure. You train your children to look to Christ as their own King. Your life, in many ways, is truly different from those around you. When someone like this bears witness to Christ, they share, preach, proclaim the Gospel, they may be slandered and maligned as being an ignorant, backward, and intolerant Christian. But their conduct does not allow the charge to stick. And when by the grace of God an unbeliever is led to Christ by the witness of this kind of Christian, they generally always confess that even though at one time they despised the Christian who witnessed to them, what they used to perceive as evil bigotry they now see is the love of Christ. The way they looked at the very same person has changed. I know I can say the same things about the Christians who were in my own life, always preaching the Gospel to me. I never wanted to be around them. They were always talking about the Bible and Jesus and prayer and the need to repent of sin, like, no, what is this? Enjoy your life, I thought. That doesn't sound like enjoyment of any kind. Until, of course, 
a day of God's gracious visitation. After which, I only wanted to be around those very same people. This is the foundational concern for Peter as he addresses the relationship of the Christian and the state. Conflict is going to be inevitable. People, including the state, are going to view you as a Christian incorrectly. There is going to be, as Peter says in verse 15, the reality of the ignorance of foolish people. That will be the case. He's preparing them for the possibility, as chapter 4, verse 16 says, that they may suffer as a Christian, and that at the hands of the state. That conflict may happen. With few exceptions, this has virtually always been the case. And it's prevalent, of course, throughout Scripture. John the Baptist was beheaded at the hands of the state for bearing witness to righteousness. Jesus Christ was crucified by decree of the state. Paul and the apostles were imprisoned on numerous occasions by various authorities of the state. But what Peter is concerned about is that those conflicts do not arise because Christians are legitimately behaving wickedly or because they're being rebellious in not acknowledging the proper role and authority of the state. He's concerned that if or when the state brings a charge against Christians, the charge, truthfully, is really just that they're living like Christians. It's unavoidable. And that if it's anything else, if, if it's any other accusation of evil doing, the charge will amount to nothing more than slander and falsehood. He's concerned that our relationship even to the state can aid in a true and serious witness of the Gospel. Our devotion, friends, to Christ should be of such a kind that the state takes notice. That there is a, a necessary assessment or judgment or response that the state has to come to with respect to Christians. And if they conclude that we are intolerant evildoers, if they conclude, as the Romans did with respect to the early Christians, that, that they were haters of mankind, those conclusions will be nothing more than the ignorance of foolish people. And if they conclude that we are a benefit to society, it will be the result of the Gospel shaping our whole lives and the common grace of God. And so friends, this is our aim as we, as we think more about our relationship to the state. This is the foundational purpose that must be at the center of all our 
conclusions. That our conduct is always to be blameless in accordance with the Gospel profess and that our conduct would ultimately aid us in the proclamation of the Gospel of Christ and bearing witness in our own bodies to the realities of His death, burial, and resurrection. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, when you redeemed us from our sins, you did not remove us from the world. You kept us here to be the instruments that you would use continue to bear witness to Christ, to the nations. And because of this, you promised that there would inevitably be heartache and joys. Joys over a sinner who repents and receives the Gospel of Christ. And heartache over those who reject it perhaps even at times violently. And Your Word prepares us for these very things. It prepares us for life in our families and it prepares us for, for life in society. And So I pray, Lord, especially in these coming weeks, that You would shape our own witness such that our lives would be the instrument you use to make unbelieving Gentiles glorify your name in the day of visitation. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.